Before I pray, I just wanted to talk a little bit about what we're going to be doing. There's a bit of a schedule. Did you all get this little sheet here? There's a couple of things there that, that are important. Um, the verses. Will you not revive us again that your people may what? Rejoice in you. We need to be revived by the Lord Jesus. Isaiah 57, For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit. To revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. God has a high and holy calling for each one of us. And uh, we read of that in, in what we've just uh, seen there. And then this quotation from Selected Messages. And it's a, a quotation I'm going to come back to often. It is our work by confession, humiliation, repentance, and earnest prayer to fulfill the conditions upon which God has promised to grant us his blessing. And then a revival need be expected only in answer to prayer. As we get started this week, um, I want to point out that line. It is our work, and then it lists a few things. What is the first thing mentioned there? It is our work by confession, and then humiliation, and then repentance, and then earnest prayer. And I would like to make the suggestion this evening that we have a tendency in the church to start with prayer and to end with prayer and not ever really get to the confession, the humiliation, and the repentance that's called for. It's almost as if we think the sentence is written exactly the opposite. But she says it's our work, and the first thing she says is confession, then humiliation, because it takes humiliating to, uh, to make things right with others, and then repentance, uh, which uh, she refers to as a, as a U-turn in terms of our behavior. She makes statements we'll find during the week where she says, many confess, but they don't repent. And so confession is inadequate in and of itself. So she says, first confess, acknowledge, humiliation, repentance, and then earnest prayer. There's a difference between casual prayer and earnest prayer. When we fulfill those conditions, we can expect the Holy Spirit to be poured out. And um, maybe some of you would agree that we've been praying much, but we've not been seeing much of a response. And I believe we need to move beyond praying. And so this week I want to do that. I want to talk about what she says. So I put together a bit of a schedule here. Tonight we want to talk just for a few minutes about our need of revival. Tomorrow night we want to talk about pursuing revival. Uh, Friday evening, what's there to confess? Um, interesting thought. And we're going to look at what's there to confess. Uh, Sabbath, we're going to talk about making things right. Very important. You'd be amazed at the strong, strong statement she makes about the need to make things with, right with others to receive the blessings of God. I mean, you're going to be surprised. I'm certain you will be surprised by some of what we find together. Then repentance is more than feeling sorry. Monday, reveling in God's mercy. Tuesday, taking up the cross, embracing the cross. Wednesday, choosing emptiness to be filled. Choosing emptiness to be filled. Uh, God is in the business of building us up and making us look nice, giving us power. 
he basically wants us to be the instruments to be his people doing his work his way. And when that is true, then God can bless us. But too often we want to do what we want to do, and we want to do it our way, and ask God to bless our work. And he's not into that business either. So choosing emptiness to be filled, then finally, or Thursday evening, staying in the fire. Friday, adopting Christ's lifestyle. And finally, Sabbath, making sure that your prayers are heard. Um, I hope this uh, will be helpful. I, I hope, I'm hoping it will be. And uh, if you come night after night, we're also going to go through this little book. And if you'll notice on your schedule, there's a little number to the right of each evening. And that's where we're going to start each evening in the little booklet that you all receive. This little booklet that, uh, that uh, is going to be made available to all of you. There's actually line numbers. So when I say I'm at line such and such, you know right where to go. Okay? And if you want to, read before the, the evening meeting the section that we're going to be studying that night. So, uh, for example, if you would have studied ahead for tonight, you would have read from line 6 to about line 148 or whatever's covered by that. That would be very, very helpful. Um, at the end of, of each evening, we're going to, or of each session, we're going to spend some more time praying, praying for revival, uh, praying we need it on an individual basis, on a church-wide basis, and for the world church too. Um, lots of people claim to be Christians and God has promised that he will bless us. Um, I remember when I was in Colorado not too long ago speaking in revival. I spoke on a Friday night and I got up quite discouraged Sabbath morning because it was a church where everyone looked nice and beautiful and were happily singing. But there was something terribly wrong. You know what that was? They weren't experiencing revival and they were still happy. Uh, it reminds me of Hudson Taylor, the missionary in, who founded the China Inland Mission. He had come back to England, and uh, he knew of the millions of people in China who had never heard the gospel, and he was down in Brighton. And he just could not go to a church full of rejoicing Christians who were completely insensitive to the need of other people. And I fear that we have come to accept the unacceptable in our churches. The presence and power of the Holy Spirit should be our birthright, not a birth defect. Did you hear me? And there is something missing. There is something wrong. And I think we need to begin, you know, changing and praying, doing whatever necessary so that the Spirit can come into our churches in power. And uh, when I was discouraged that Thursday night, uh, I was, I mean, Friday night, I got up Sabbath morning and I was reading and three things struck me. Number one, God wants revival more than we do. God wants revival more than we do. If, if the Bible says that God is willing to give the Holy Spirit you know, more willingly than we parents are to give good gifts to our children, then there's no unwillingness on God's part. She also makes a statement that Satan cannot stop revival. Now, think about that. If God wants to give revival more than we want to receive it and Satan can't stop it, then who's got the problem? We've got the problem. Would you agree? And the question that I asked the church that morning where I was was, when Jesus comes and you've never experienced revival, what will be your excuse? What will you say to God? This is why I didn't experience it. This is why it wasn't possible for you to bless our family. This is why you weren't able to work in our church. 
What excuse is there? I think we're going to be speechless because if God wants it and Satan can't stop it, then there must be something in us. And so this week, my brothers and sisters, I'm choosing to be down here. I don't like to be up there, frankly, because this is a discussion of family. Did you hear me? I hope that we can come together and really think about what it means to experience revival and then that we will do whatever we can do and whatever we need to do to have the power of God. Okay? I want to pray and I want to share a few quotations with you. And uh, we're just going to kind of work every evening and the Lord willing, all of our lives will hopefully be better for the time. So I'd like to kneel for just a moment. Father in heaven, I want to thank you that you have drawn this group of people together to pray together, to come into one accord with one another, and to come into a right relationship with you. Ellen White makes a statement that if they needed 10 days, we need even more time to become right with you. And Lord, as, as was mentioned in the prayer time, we are so busy, so distracted is another way to put it, that we kind of go through without knowing for sure. Sometimes, even where we stand with you, let alone praying and seeking after the Holy Spirit and refusing to not receive the answer. I have been chosen. It's a sobering responsibility. Please forgive me, Lord, of my sins. Please make me the vessel that you can use this week. And please forgive my friends here too, Lord. We are all sinners, even when we're doing our best. I'm thankful that you're merciful, that your love is new every day, Lord. We need it new every day. And I just ask that you would, for your own sake, revive us. Father, do it in such a way that you will get all the credit and all the glory because, Lord, we're here for you, not for us. So put your words in my mouth and then take my words and use them however you can that you might be honored and lives might be changed. Might this church, Father, become a bright spot in this community. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Hebrews chapter 12 has a verse that we read every once in a while. He's, Hebrews chapter 12, I think it's about verse 14. It says there, well, we'll start in verse 12. Therefore strengthen the hands which hang down in feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. It's interesting. That which is lame, instead of being dislocated, becomes healed. Churches should be places of healing, right? They should not be places where spiritual dislocation takes place. And then it says, Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. It's interesting, it makes two statements there. First, pursue peace with all people, not just some, not your friends, but pursue peace with all people. And then what else? And then, and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Apparently, if we want to walk in right relationship with God, it requires that we be in right relationship with the people around us. And right relationship with God. If 
God blesses us this week, it will be because we take seriously being in right relationship with people and we take seriously being in right relationship with God. So I have to ask you from the very beginning, how desirous are you for that kind of experience? Are you here just to listen? Or are you here because you truly are willing to say, Lord, show me. Open my eyes to see my condition because I no longer want to be a hindrance to what you want to do. What do you want? What do you want to do? Look at, if you would, uh, 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. It says, As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former losses in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And we read something similar in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen Generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. We have been called to be the light of the world. Now, in talking with other people, it's, it's been mentioned to me that it's, 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 it's a challenging place, you know, a challenging place. My brothers and sisters, the world is as dark as can be. When the Holy Spirit comes into this church, I can assure you, you will not have a, a single seat left. You're going to be worrying about, you know, building a new building or dividing and, and having satellites. You know, when the Twelve gathered on the day of Pentecost, God miraculously brought thousands of people, right? Why can't God do it today? Why can't God do it today? Why not pursue that? I don't think it will happen until we realize that we are indeed a chosen generation. Now is the time. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him. We are called to live in such a way that there will be no doubts as to who we belong to and where our loyalties lie. God had another chosen people. Look in the book of Isaiah, if you would, in Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1. And it's kind of a, a sad thing when you read it. It starts up with Isaiah having a vision in the times of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Can't help but feel like maybe there's a reason God uses uh, Uzziah because there was a time when he was a, a very godly king and then when he became strong, he forgot where his strength was and he went into the temple on his own and began to do things in his own way. And I believe that that is sadly what often happens to churches. Um, historically, you know, they, they have a, 
a godly beginning and then there's a, a forgetfulness and it becomes more a matter of policy and programs and that seems to be at odds with the working of the Holy Spirit. In verse 2 of chapter 1, God complains, I've nourished and brought up children, but they have rebelled against me. Verse 4, Alas, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a brood of evildoers, children who are corruptors, they have forsaken the Lord, they have provoked to anger the Holy One of Israel, they have turned away backwards. And the question is that, why should you be stricken again? Why do we need to have this continue? Now, it's interesting. When God speaks, he uses very direct language. Hear you, the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me? Wow. They were still busy making sacrifices. But yet God could call them a, a brood of evildoers, corruptors. People were worse off for knowing them. Anyway, God says, Who told you to come and offer all these sacrifices? Do I delight in the blood of bulls, etc.? And he actually, and, and Isaiah actually delivers the message, don't bring any more futile sacrifices. Because God was not recognizing the motions when they were not walking with him. Notice as well, uh, verse 15, when you spread out your hands, what is that referring to? When you pray, I will hide my eyes from you, even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. God says, I don't, I'm not even noticing your prayers because there is something wrong. And then God speaks further, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. We don't find in that verse where God is saying, hope that something will change for the better. God says, what does it say? Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. We must make a decision. We must make a decision. It says, cease to do evil. Learn to do good. In some cases, we may have to learn. Then it goes on to talk about new relationships with others, relationships of justice, of caring about others, pleading for the widow, etc. And, and I love it because there in verse 18, after talking about these people in, in unvarnished terms, God says, though your sins are as scarlet. Though your sins are scarlet. Do you know what that word actually refers to? It refers to when they would make scarlet back then. They would take a piece of cloth and they would dip it twice. And that's how they got it red enough to be called scarlet. And I've sometimes asked myself the question, how is sin twice dipped? And I wonder, maybe it's, it refers to when we make mistakes, we feel bad, but then we keep doing it. And eventually we rationalize that it's okay. And therefore, we are, are numb. We are, you know, insensitive to the pleadings of the Holy Spirit. And God says, even though your sins are like twice-dipped scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. God isn't unhopeful. He says, if you just come, I can do a work 
Notice in verse 19, if you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be what? Devoured by the sword. Wow. And if you read through the book of Isaiah, you read through the book of Jeremiah, God is giving constant messages of warning and entreaty. Would you please come? Would you please follow? But what do the people keep doing? They don't really want to hear. They don't really want to hear. And so we find in Jeremiah chapter 5, Jeremiah chapter 5, Jeremiah chapter 5, 30 and 31, it says, An astonishing and horrible thing has been committed in the land. Surprising, astonishing, horrible in terms of its effects. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule by their own power. Okay? I can imagine, you know, people say, Man, this isn't right. There's something wrong. But notice, and my people love to have it so. People realized there was something wrong. But they weren't sorry. They were happy. Now, I'm not saying any of you are like that at all. But I think that we are God's chosen people in our, our day, aren't we? Don't we believe that? And I think people believed it and they were making their sacrifices. They were offering their prayers and, and yet there was something terribly wrong and the people were just as happy. Well, notice what, uh, what we read, and I'm just going to, to get to, and I'll give you line numbers. Look at line 47, if you would. Today, there are few who are heartily serving God. Line 47. It's the line numbers on the left. The most of those who compose our congregations are spiritually dead in trespasses and sins. They come and go like the door upon its hinges. For years they have complacently listened. They have carelessly listened to the most solemn, soul-stirring truths. But they have what? They have not practiced them. They are less and less sensible of the preciousness and value of the truth. Is that not true? Because what? They neglect the practice of those things which are pleasing in the sight of God. The problem is, is that we believe, we hear the words, but we are not putting into practice the things that we are hearing. Then the next one, line 57. We are living in a most solemn time. In the last vision given me, I was shown the startling fact that but a small portion of those who now profess the truth will be sanctified by it and be saved. She said she was startled, she was shocked because so few apparently were going to be sanctified and saved by the truth. Wouldn't it be a pity to go through life and discover when everything is said and done that we're still lost because we were just too complacent to move out of our comfort zone and say, I refuse to keep things the way they are. It says they will conform, conform line 60, to the world, cherish idols, and become spiritually dead. The humble, self-sacrificing followers of Jesus will pass on to perfection, leaving behind the indifferent and the lovers of the world. Notice, the people are left behind. It doesn't say that the sinners is the indifferent. What is the indifferent? Could be any one of us, right? The indifferent and the lovers of this world. Okay? 
Line 63, I have waited anxiously, hoping that God would put his spirit upon some and use them as instruments of righteousness to awaken and set in order his church. I have almost despaired as I have seen year after year a greater departure from that simplicity which God has shown me should characterize the life of his followers. Okay? Line 71, I saw that great changes must be wrought in the hearts and lives of very many before God can work in them by his power for the salvation of others. They must be renewed after the image of God in righteousness and what? True holiness. There's that word. Holiness is a good biblical term. Then the love of the world, the love of self, and every ambition of life calculated to exalt self will be changed how? By the grace of God. God can change us. Okay? God will change us and employed in the special work of saving souls for whom Christ died. Humility will take the place of pride and haughty self-esteem will be exchanged for meekness. We're going to talk about meekness when we talk about adopting God's lifestyle. Every power of the heart will be controlled by disinterested love for all mankind. I love that. It says, not some hearts, but every heart will be controlled. Somehow God will be able to so change our hearts, so give us new hearts, that there will be this disinterested love for the world. Okay? Now, it's interesting that when the Holy Spirit first worked, line 87, they were tender, thoughtful, self-denying, willing to make any sacrifice for the truth's sake. Okay? They were willing to make any sacrifice for the sake of the truth. But lowness line 91, but gradually a change came. The believers began to look for defects in others, dwelling upon mistakes, giving place to unkind criticism. They lost sight of the Savior and His love. They became more strict in regards to outward ceremonies. Line 94 at the end, in their zeal to condemn others, they overlooked their own errors. Line 96, and saddest of all, they were unconscious of their loss. They didn't even know that Jesus was disappearing from their midst. They did not realize that happiness and joy were going out of their lives, that having shut the love of God out of their hearts, they would soon walk in darkness. Okay? And then in my booklet, line 100, there's, there's a whole list of, of, of indictments that are made against the various churches. The last one being, you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Why is it? What does Jesus say? I stand at the door and knock, right? Someone talked about this when I was in the Solomon Islands. I'd never heard this before. The problem of the Laodicean church, it's a church where Jesus is outside the door. And until we invite him in by surrender and buying those things that he urges us to buy, we're kind of working on our own. I thought there might be something to that. Notice. Line 115. The church is like the unproductive tree which receiving the dew and rain and the sunshine should have produced an abundance of fruit but on which the divine searcher finds nothing but leaves. Solemn thought for our churches, solemn indeed for every individual. Marvelous is the patience and forbearance of God you know, in terms of God enduring. But except thou repent, it shall be exhausted. And then notice, the churches, our institutions, will go from weakness to weakness, from cold formality to deadness, while they are saying, I am rich and increased in goods and have need of nothing. 
He says we're going to go from weakness to weakness, from cold formality to what? To deadness. Okay? There is to be in the churches a wonderful manifestation of the power of God, but it will not move upon those who have not humbled themselves before the Lord and opened the door of the heart by confession and repentance. Notice, it will not move upon our hearts without confession and repentance. In the manifestation of that power which lightens the earth with the glory of God, they will see only something which in their blindness they think dangerous, something which will arouse their fears and they will brace themselves to resist it. How about that? When the Holy Spirit is trying to work, instead of people welcoming it, encouraging it, there's going to be an effort to say, no, no, we, this is dangerous. We do not want that. And so comes the, the very famous statement that we've all read many times. A revival of true godliness among us is what? Is the greatest and most urgent of all our needs. To seek this should be our what? Our first work. And I'm so glad that you've all come out tonight. I know there's lots to do. But when Jesus comes, I'm not sure that a lot of the things that keep our time are going to matter that much, will they? No. There must be earnest effort to obtain the blessings of the Lord, not because God is not willing to bestow His blessings upon us, I'm at line 134, but because we are unprepared to receive it. Our Heavenly Father is more willing to give His Holy Spirit to them that ask Him than our earthly parents to give good gifts to their children. But it is our work by confession, humiliation, repentance, and earnest prayer to fulfill the conditions upon which God has promised to grant us His blessings. A revival need be expected only in answer to prayer. So that's why we're here this week. We want to seek after revival, right? Should be our, it says it's, it's the, our greatest and most urgent need. It should be our first work. So we want to just spend some time praying now. The, the last quotation there in this section speaks about how Reformation and revival need to go together. One can't go on without the other. But we want to just take some time, and I'd like to suggest that maybe we turn to someone close by, maybe pray in groups of two or three if, if that's necessary, and ask God to bless us during the next 10 days in a special way for His sake, not for my sake and not for your church's sake. You know, we sometimes want our churches to be blessed because we need more membership, we need more help in the church. No, that's not the reason to pray for revival. We pray for revival because we want God honored, Right? We pray for God's honor, for, for God's name to be lifted up. And so join with another person and ask God to, one, bless those that are here tonight in their personal lives and seeking revival, and that God would call many, many people to come out this week to, to get real and serious with Jesus, and that the same spirit of revival would, would go throughout the world. There's a desperate need all over the world for Jesus to have the first word and the last word and every word in between. So let's take some time and then we'll maybe start a chorus from the front to let everyone know the time to wrap up. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.